in the beginning, there was East Coast hip-hop. And East Coast hip-hop sounded like New York City. In New York, you're always walking. You're always out on the street, always trying to get someplace fast. The city's loud. It's frantic. You hear the subway clanking. You hear the cars honking and the people yelling. And I'm talking about New York back when hip-hop started. A time when New York was at its most New York, its most gritty, its most intense. And the music sounded like that, too. Take the quintessential New York artist, LL Cool J. By 1985, when he released I Can't Live Without My Radio, he killed the New York sound. Just stop and listen to LL, man. I mean, that drum loop. It's rapid-fire rhymes over rapid-fire beats. You think LL is trying to kill you. He's angry. He's hardcore. And in New York, you had to be hardcore. That's the sound that Def Jam built. And for a long time, that sound was hip-hop. And Def Jam was on top of the world. But it couldn't stay like that forever. Eventually, hip-hop moved out west. And when it got to the west coast, it really started to change. In the west coast, you got this one consistent summer weather. You got the palm trees, the sun is out, the women are beautiful, and you drive. It's a car culture. You're driving with the top down, you're smoking that good weed, man. And that's what comes out in the music. Perfect example, Dr. Dre's nothing but a G thing. One, two, three into the boat. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope. Ready to make Think of the groove like it's floating, like the beats are still there, but it's more based on the vibe. They're selling a vibe, they're creating a vibe. The music sounded like summer, forever summer, like cruising, like getting high. By the early 1990s, that West Coast sound was starting to dominate everything. It sounded fresh, and it's what people wanted to hear. And that's great if you're making those funky West Coast beats. But it's not so great if you're Def Jam and your signature sound is starting to get stale. We're ice cold. We're very cold. A lot of the, the same go-to artists, they were still hot, they were still making a good record. But we had a lot of other artists that we developed that were not hot. And you know, there's a moment where we were at risk losing the company. That's Russell Simmons, one of the co-founders of Def Jam. If his company was going to survive, they needed some new sounds. And luckily, Chris Lighty had just been hired by Def Jam and he had his ear to the streets. I'm Reggie Yose, and this is Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty, a production of Gimlet Media and Loudspeakers Network. So Chris Lighty had been a Def Jam fan from way back, and landing a job there was his big break. He was not about to let his new employer go belly up. That meant finding a star for them, Someone to put Def Jam back on top. But sometimes, saviors come in the most unlikely forms. 
I used to have tape on my glasses because they would break. I couldn't, I didn't, you know, didn't get no screws and nothing. I didn't, you know, back then they wasn't selling screws in the stores, you know, and I never did get to a, a, a eye doctor to give them my glasses to fix it. So I would put tape on there and had an arm taped on there like a nerd just to keep my arm on. And uh, that's, that's just how it was. Warren Griffin was a little-known producer from Long Beach, California. He made some beats for other artists and rhymed on a few other rappers' records, but back in the early 1990s, he was unsigned. And he was broke. I had uh, moved back with my sister and uh, was just, just producing tracks, you know, sitting right on her floor with my MPC-60, a crate of records, and my turntable and mixer, putting samples together and, and drum drum tracks. That's pretty much what I was doing. <laughs> and that's how he'd spend his days, sitting on his sister's floor, his shit piled up around him, dirty socks, vinyl, taped together glasses. And he'd dig through his record collection, looking for beats and samples, honing his signature sound. Here's Warren explaining it to my producer, Matthew Nelson. My sound was G-Funk. What was G-Funk for people who don't know? Chords, strings, we brings, melody. That's G-Funk. Right. Live instrumentation uh, with melodies. Warren listened to a lot of different shit back in those days. He was into funk bands like Parliament Funkadelic, but he also fucked with cats like Pete Seeger and Michael McDonald. For example, Warren loved to spin this track, I Keep Forgetting. I keep forgetting so there he was, making beats, coming up with all of these ideas, but getting no recognition. To make matters worse, it seemed like Everyone else is making moves. Warren's stepbrother, this cat named Andre Ramel Young, had just launched the hottest label on the West Coast, Death Row Records. And one of his best friends, this dude named Calvin Brodus Jr., was signed there too. If those names don't sound familiar, it's probably because you know them as Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. That's right. The nerd would tape together glasses, listening to Michael McDonald as the stepbrother of one of the biggest names in hip-hop, Dr. Dre and he's childhood friends with Snoop Dogg, and he worked with them both. He supplied beats for Dre's The Chronic and Snoop's Doggy Style, but still, no one was checking for Warren. He was just a name in the credits, and if they did know him, it was probably for this skit right here at the start of one of Dr. Dre's tracks. Hello. What's up? Nothing, what you doing? Man, this kicking it. Hey, did, did, did what's your name get at you yesterday? So when this album came out, like the biggest thing that we used to do, we would call people and prank them and have them ask us a question about somebody. And we respond with the D's nuts. Well, Warren G was a D's nuts guy. So Warren's kind of awkward, but he's obviously got talent and he's got connections and he's making beats for two of Death Row's biggest artists. But here's what's fucked up. Death Row never tried to sign him. Did it hurt your feelings? Yeah. Hell yeah. You know, I mean, all I knew was being with Snoop and Dre. You know what I'm saying? So being separated from them, which we wasn't separated like that, but just not being on the same label and, and uh working together like we was just it just it just was was not cool for me, you know, because that's my family. Chutch. Right. One thing I can say is my brother was like 
you should go out and be your own man and, and build your own outside of this because I don't want you to get into no bullshit. An opportunity for Warren to be his own man arrived when he met a record executive named Paul Stewart. Paul was working as a music supervisor for the film director, John Singleton. He hired me to help him uh, music supervise the Poetic Justice film. And so I was in the studio, uh, Death Row Studios. Paul was there to collect soundtrack songs from some of the label's biggest artists. It took a lot of time hanging out around those guys to kind of get the song delivered. Dre and them were really hot. They weren't pressed about it. They wanted to do it because it was John Singleton's new movie, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But they weren't, they weren't super pressed about it. And so I hung out at the studio a lot. Warren was hanging out at the studios a lot, too. He noticed Paul and sensed an opportunity. It was pretty unusual for, you know, a white guy to come in like that knows that we like, you know, if he's in here, he must be somebody. I heard him talking about soundtracks and they was looking for songs for soundtracks. He craftily kind of like pulled me to the side and said, hey, I got, I remember specifically said, yo, cuz, I got my own stuff. Let's go outside, sit in the car, I'm gonna play it for you. The track was a song Warren had co-written and produced for another rapper, a cat called Mr. Grimm. Warren popped up on a couple of verses, but he was pitching himself as a producer here. Warren came out. I remember we got into the truck, and yeah, it was definitely like a handwritten kind of cassette type of thing, and it was Mr. Grimm Indo Smoke. Smoking on the bud, feeling kind of high. Sipping on the gin, feeling kind of fine. A Warren G production sits in the tape deck as Mr. Grimm raps, overlaps, don't say shit, just... It played through the first, uh, like, verse and hook, and I ejected it. He says, stop. Like, it only paid for, like, 45 seconds, and he looked at me crazy. You know, I, I just took it as, like, what the fuck is up? You know, like, what's happening? Like, you don't like the shit? So I felt a certain kind of way then, but he said, let me take the tape. So when he said, let me take the tape, I was like, oh, shit, go ahead. It was an incredibly... A uh, funky Warren G funk track, you know, like, I mean, that loop is just a monster, you know what I mean? And like, you know, it, and, and the way I was rapping was different from everybody else. Plus, I wrote a lot of Endo Smoke, you know, so it's like one for the money, two for the bitches, three to get ready and four to hit the switches. Oh, that's the wrong one. <laughs> hey, not that one, but uh, ah. Endo smoke, pass me the joint so I could take a toke. One puff, two puff, three puff. <clears throat> wait a minute, wait, hold up, wait a minute. <clears throat> Gotta clear my throat. Uh, one puff, two puff, three puff, four puff, five, I'm feeling real high. I'm leaning to the side in my motherfucking ride with the OG gangster glide. Woo! Hey, now you know, inhale, exhale with my flow. Different. It was different. You know, in, in my career, finding certain hits and things, I can remember certain moments better than others. You know what I mean? But I distinctly remember just like immediately knowing this is fire. We're doing this. I'm fucking with you. You know what I mean? And the whole... The whole conversation was pretty short. Paul knew that the track was hot, but at the time, he saw Warren Moore as a behind-the-scenes guy, a producer who could help big-name artists make hits. So he signed on to be Warren's manager. His next step? Get him working with a label. 
To promote Warren, Paul sent the song to all of the influential people in his Rolodex. This is the 90s, remember. People still use Rolodexes. My uh, insider A-list. You remember, Reg, you used to get these kind of things. You know what I mean? So you just, these are your industry insiders. They might work at another label or whatever, but they're in the industry. They're an important, right, person. They might be a DJ. They might work at the source. You know what I mean? Right. We mailed out like about 30 of these. And this is where Chris Lighty enters the story. And I remember clearly Chris Lighty called me back after he got his, and he said, hey, who's the guy in uh, the third verse rapping? And I said, oh, that's Warren G. Lighty wanted to know who the unknown rapper in the third verse was because he saw and he heard something that all of the other industry execs and even Warren's own brother had missed. The unknown producer with the broken glasses could be a star. I think Chris was, I mean, I think he was really smart to recognize that you know, this guy could be a big artist, you know, and I got to give him all credit that, like I said, me and John, who were managing him, didn't even have that vision. I know I didn't. So I just think Chris was such a visionary that he understood, you know, what a big artist Warren could be. He saw a good looking young cat from the West Coast that had flows, that had a personality that could produce, that was affiliated with Dre and Snoop. I mean, what wasn't to see? You know what I mean? Like, I I smacked my head a million times afterwards going, man, how come Chris was thinking about this before me in some regards? You know what I mean? Coming up after the break, Chris turns on the charm and tries to sign Warren G. Welcome back to Mogul. Once Chris decided that he wanted to sign Warren G, he probably knew that it wasn't going to be as simple as collecting a signature. Back then, West Coast artists rarely signed the East Coast labels and vice versa. Warren G. would have to be convinced that he should break tradition and head to Def Jam. And it was Chris Lighty's job to do the convincing. Uh, Chris came out, I ate dinner with him. He told me they wanted to sign me, so I was like, you know, it's all good. We, you know, we'll see how, how it pan out. So, How did he try and persuade you? What sort of stuff is he saying? I can't remember everything he said. You know, I, I, I just know everything we did was... was uh, it was laid out, you know, and I had never been treated to dinner or, you know, showed a good time like that back then. Super shit in Beverly Hills. You know, big steaks I had never seen before. Uh, seafood, just different things I had never had, like like sautéed shrimps and stuff like that. I had shrimp, you know, in, in my neighborhood, but it was different, you know rice pilaf and just just different shit you know and somebody bringing you drinks to the table you know that shit was that shit was live we did a lot of that eating and bossing up because that's that's how it was rice pilaf wasn't chris lighty's only method of persuasion he had other tricks up his sleeve when it came to impressing warren g uh they flew me to new york i've never been on an airplane uh, me and the twins. Who are the twins? That was they was one of my groups. Told my buddies, y'all come with me. The first night I stayed there, I was I was, you know, just chilling, uh, enjoying being in New York, able to order whatever I wanted, steaks, whatever, liquor in my room. Me and the twins, we was lifted. We went down in Times Square. We was on forty second and uh forty seventh to seventh street at the embassy suites. So the next morning I got a phone call and I was like, Hello? And it was like, hey, this is LL Cool J. I'm I'm here downstairs at the hotel. Come here. So I was like, huh? So I hung the phone up. So he called back and he was like, yo, this is LL. 
I'm downstairs, man. Come down. I want to, you know, I want to holler at you. So I said, okay. So I called the twin. I was like, man, call me downstairs. There's some dude sitting up here telling me he LL Cool J. Let me see who the fuck this is. So uh, back then you could get on the plane with guns. I had a Glock. And uh, so we went downstairs and sure enough, it was LL Cool J. Jumped in the car with him. Did you have the gun with you? Yeah. He didn't know it. Because he probably wouldn't have let me get in the car. But uh, we went to Queens, went shopping at the mall. He took me to his to his house, showed me how he started with his, you know, had all his clothes laid down in the basement, just really laid the, 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 the laid it out to me on how, you know, his, his story was, how he built himself and how he, you know, what it took. And I thought that was like the greatest shit ever because I was, I am still and I was, a humongous fan of LL Cool J, you know? So that really, like, blew my mind just to meet him and be in the fucking car with him. All of that came from Chris Lighty, man. Warren signed a Def Jam. And that Michael McDonald track he was fucking around with in his sister's crib, Warren transformed it into this. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Warren G was on the streets trying to consume some skirts for the E so I could get some phones rolling in my ride, chilling all alone. That song Regulate became a massive hit. I was in Brooklyn when it first dropped and you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. As for Warren G, what do you do when you go from sleeping on your sister's floor to the penthouse? You party, you fucking party hard. And that's exactly what Chris and Warren did. We had we had some good parties together. I I I gotta I gotta say we probably we've had the the you know like how NWA had Wet and Wild. You, this is Def Jam. Bikinis, shorts, the summertime. That was the mode. We uh, rented a mansion. And uh, we had uh, shuttles, you know, people would park in Beverly Hills. We had the shuttles bring everybody up to the mansion. We the ones started that, by the way. You know, everybody in Hollywood, from movies to hip-hop and music in general, they do that now. But we started that, me and Chris Lighty. Everybody else followed after that. So that's how we had it, man. And we had it to where everything was laid out when you come in the door. Uh, You got a bar walk up another level you can eat live barbecue being cooked steaks whatever you wanted was right there then you go up again you got the dance floor and we had other side rooms cards uh, dominoes whatever and just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beautiful ladies and uh me and Chris was in the middle of it all tell you what the trip about the whole thing was is a lot of the beautiful ladies from New York to the West Coast used to always say me and Chris look like brothers everywhere we went they used to think we was brothers he loved that because a lot of women was probably on him because of me (laughs) hey but it was all good you know what I'm saying because Chris was a cool dude and for somebody to say that we look alike that was cool do you listen to Warren G at those parties? Oh, we was banging everything. Warren G, 
death row shit, everything, even 80s, rock music, everything was playing at our shit. You know, cause it was, it was, it wasn't just blacks. It was blacks, whites, Mexicans, Asians, Dominicans, everything. We played everything, man. We played all types of good music. That was that was uh, my friend and boss. That's how we used to do it. Yeah, have fun, man. Warren G's first album sold over three million copies. It went triple platinum. The album made Warren a star, and all of the money it brought in managed to save Def Jam. For sure, nigga, we was dead. We was gone. So it was it was a very special moment for us because it it gave us a little breathing room, it gave us freedom, and it gave us billing. It made the company hot. They were thirty three million dollars in debt before Warren G, and then when Warren G came out, they were thirty had a thirty three million surplus, right? So good job, Chris Lighty, right? You goddamn right. I probably wouldn't have signed with them if I'd have known that they was in debt. You know, back then, I'm just happy to be a part of history. You know, and, and like I said, Chris Lighty opened that door. Lior Cohen opened the door. And Russell Simmons opened the door. But Chris was the guy who did the groundwork. Def Jam made the most of its second chance. In the second half of the 1990s, the label had a new golden era where acts like DMX, Method Man, Ludacris, Foxy Brown, and Jay-Z. But the deal didn't just change the course of Def Jam's history. It changed Warren G's life, too. But I just wasn't taking no shit back then. I, I was... I was really hot-headed back then, you know. If it wasn't for the Chris Lighty and the Def Jam situation, I'd probably be in jail right now, you know, probably for shooting somebody. You really think that? I know it. And uh, so they pretty much saved me from going to jail, and I saved them from crumbling as a company. By the mid-1990s, Chris Lighty had established himself as a force at Def Jam. He was promoted to vice president of A&R, and it seemed like he'd become the guy that Lior Cohen wanted him to be. The executive, the businessman, corporate Chris Lighty, not violator Chris Lighty. So it's true that Chris had come a long way, but he hadn't entirely left the streets behind. Not because he didn't want to, but because he couldn't. Let me break something down that I know from personal experience. In hip-hop, there's no clear way to differentiate between the streets and the boardroom. No matter how high you rise up the corporate ladder, most of the music still comes from the street. And a lot of the people that you work with are street. There's this dance that goes on between both worlds. And the street exploded back into Chris's life when the Warren G deal led him on a collision course with the most feared man in hip-hop, Death Row Records co-founder, Suge Knight. A few things to know about Suge Knight. First of all, he's not to be fucked with. He was a huge guy, built like an NFL player. In fact, he was one. He played two games for the LA Rams back in 1987. And when it came to his business, Suge ran his label, Death Row, like a gang. They had a reputation in the music industry for using strong-arm violent tactics to get what they wanted. Death Row didn't just use lawyers to negotiate. They used baseball bats and guns. There's this famous story that Suge dangled vanilla ice by his ankles off a 15th floor balcony to get him to sign over royalties to his hit record, Ice Ice Baby. Now, that's a bit of a tall tale. Suge denies that it ever happened, but still, it's a big part of the legend of Suge Knight. 
So, not the kind of man or label you want to clash with. But that's the position Chris found himself in when he and Lior were in Los Angeles at a De La Soul concert. Suge and his entourage were there, too. Chris explained what went down in an interview he gave to Def Jam biographer Bill Adler. Suge comes in saying, I want to talk to Lior. I need to talk to him. And Suge's not happy. Suge's not happy. Suge was pissed that Warren signed with Def Jam. Never mind that they didn't sign him themselves, that they totally ignored him. What mattered was that Chris had got into Suge Knight's backyard and taken something without permission. You don't do that. And now that Chris and Lior were in L.A., on Death Row turf, Suge wanted to do some Death Row-style negotiating with them. Lighty saw trouble brewing and told Lior, head for the exit. He'd handle this one alone. It was time for the violator to return. I was like, you know, you know, I'm involved in the whole Warren G thing. That's what he says to you. Suge says to I you. say that to Suge. I'm involved in the war, so you could talk to me. And he's like, no, I want to talk to Lior. And I was like, nah, you can't talk to Lior. Leo left. I just told him to leave. So now you got to talk to me. Lighty wasn't just protecting his mentor here. He was protecting the reputation of Def Jam. Get played by Suge Knight, and the label would never live it down. Like, he would have just tried to embarrass Leo because it's the white guy. It wouldn't have been a good look for Leo. I, I don't know what would have happened. Him smacking Leo or something like that. Like, we're the mighty Def Jam. Leo can't get smacked. So here's Chris, toe-to-toe with Suge Knight. Now, Lighty's a big guy, six foot plus, but he's not in the same weight class as Suge. Chris did have a friend with him, though, and his friend was packing. And my friend is there, and I said, Who's your friend? friend. 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 No, he's not big. He's actually a little shorter than me. His name is Light. But what he was holding, there was nothing light about it. So Light has no problem showing him what bodily harm that he could due to Suge at that moment. And Suge, 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 but he wasn't posse up? He's all by himself? Nah, he was posse up, but it, what he had, what the posse wasn't gonna, they would've caught it too. It would've been like, who wants to go first? You've seen the movie. You're definitely getting shot. You're next. You're, I might get hurt, but you're definitely getting hurt. There's no doubt you're getting hurt. You spelled it out. Tell me what actually you had to say. That's what, you, I didn't have to say anything. I said, my man doesn't feel that way. He just pulled out and said, hey. I said, so you're not going to see Leo tonight. That's not right. That's not right. But we'll be back. We'll be back, all right? We'll be back. Chris convinced hip-hop's most famous bully, Suge Knight, to back down. And in doing so, he saved Def Jam's reputation once again. You might think that getting into it with Suge Knight is as intense as it gets, but you'd be surprised. Now that Lighty had proved himself, the pressure is just going to get more and more and more intense. Next time on Mogul, even more chaos comes Chris's way. And I think he just loved it so much, he just let that shit consume him from sun up to sundown. New episodes of Mogul come out every Friday. 
Mogul is a production of Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network. This episode was produced by Eric Eddings and Meg Driscoll, with help from Isabella Kulkarni, Jonathan Mena, and Peter Bresnan. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. You heard him earlier in the episode. Now, one of our favorite moments that didn't make it into the episode was when Matthew asked Warren G one too many questions. So we... Same shit I just told you. I know, I know. <laughs> so I, what else do you want me to tell you? No, How I walked to the bathroom and pissed and was drinking Hennessy and shitted, probably eating food. What? What else do I need to tell you? <laughs> Those are good things. What socks I had on? <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice work, Matt. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music direction by Matthew Bowl. This episode was scored by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk, with additional music by Haley Shaw, Bobby Lord, and Nana Quabena. If you like what we're doing here, please go rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help new people find out about the show. Come on, B. Do it for the culture. Got internets? Got Twitter? Follow us for all the latest news and a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul. Sit there.